Earlier, I stated that Jacob Schiff came to America with orders by Rothschild to carry out four specific directives. The first and most important one was to get control of the United States money system. Let's trace Schiff's step to accomplish that directive. As a first step, he had to buy into a banking house, but it had to be the kind of a house that he could absolutely control and mold for that primary objective of entrapping our U.S. money system. After carefully scouting around, Jacob bought a partnership in a firm that called itself Kuhn and Loeb. Like Schiff, Kuhn and Loeb were immigrants from German Jewish ghettos. They came to the United States in the mid-1840s. Both started their business careers as itinerant pack peddlers. In the early 1850s, they pooled their interests and set up a merchandising store in Lafayette, Indiana, under the firm name of Kuhn and Loeb servicing the covered wagon settlers on their way west. In the years that followed, they set up similar stores in Cincinnati and St. Louis. Then they added pawnbroking to their merchandising pursuits. From that to money lending was a short and quick step. By the time Schiff arrived on the scene, Kuhn and Loeb was a well-known private banking firm. And this is the firm Jacob bought into. Shortly after he became a partner in Kuhn and Loeb, Schiff married Loeb's daughter, Teresa. Then he bought out Kuhn's interests and moved the firm to New York, and Kuhn and Loeb became Kuhn, Loeb and Company, international bankers with Jacob Schiff, agent of the Rothschilds, ostensibly the sole owner. And throughout his career, this blend of Judas and Machiavelli the first hierarch of the Illuminati, great conspiracy in America, posed as a generous philanthropist and a man of great holiness, the cover-up policy set forth by the Illuminati. As I have stated, the first great step of the conspiracy was to be the entrapment of our money system. To achieve that objective, Schiff had to get full cooperation of the then big banker elements in America. And that was easier said than done. Even in those years, Wall Street was the heart of the American money mart, and J.P. Morgan was its dictator. Next in line were the Drexels and the Biddles in Philadelphia. All the other financiers, big and little, danced to the music of those three houses, but particularly to that of Morgan. All of those three were proud, haughty, arrogant potentates. For the first few years, they viewed the little bewhiskered man from the German ghettos with utter contempt. But Jacob knew how to overcome that. He threw a few Rothschild bones to them, said bones being distribution in America of desirable European stock and bond issues. Then he discovered he had a still more potent weapon in his hands in the following. It was in the decades following our civil war that our industries began to burgeon. We had great railroads to build. The oil, mining, steel, textile industries were bursting out of their swaddling clothes. All that called for vast financing. Much of that financing had to come from abroad. That meant the House of Rothschild. And that was when Schiff came into his own. He played a very crafty game. 
He became the patron saint of John D. Rockefeller, Edward R. Harriman, and Andrew Carnegie. He financed the Standard Oil Company for Rocky, the Railroad Empire for Harriman, and the Steel Empire for Carnegie. But instead of hogging all the other industries for Kuhn, Loeb, and Company, he opened the doors of the House of Rothschild to Morgan, Biddle, and Drexel. In turn, Rothschild arranged the setting up of London, Paris, European, and other branches for those three, but always in partnerships with Rothschild subordinates. And Rothschild made it very clear to all those men that Schiff was to be the boss in New York. Thus, at the turn of the century, Schiff had a tight control of the entire banking fraternity on Wall Street, which by then, with Schiff's help, included Lehman Brothers, Goldman Sachs, and other internationalist banks, headed by men chosen by the Rothschilds. In short, that meant control of the nation's money powers, and he was then ready for the giant step, the entrapment of our national money system. Now, under our Constitution, all control of our money system is vested solely in our Congress. Schiff's next important step was to seduce our Congress to betray that constitutional edict by surrendering that control to the hierarchy of the Illuminati's great conspiracy. In order to legalize that surrender and thus make the people powerless to resist it, it would be necessary to have Congress enact special legislation. To accomplish that, Schiff would have to infiltrate Stooges into both houses of Congress, Stooges powerful enough to railroad Congress into passing such legislation. Equally, or even more important, he would have to plant a Stooge in the White House, a president without integrity and without scruples, who would sign that legislation into law. To accomplish that, he had to get control of either the Republican or the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party was the more vulnerable. It was the hungrier of the two parties. Except for Grover Cleveland, the Democrats had been unable to land one of their men in the White House since before the Civil War. There were two reasons for that. Number one, poverty of the party. Number two, there were considerably more Republican-minded voters than Democrats. The poverty matter was not a great problem, but the voter problem was a different story. But as I previously said, Schiff was a smart cookie. Here is the atrocious and murderous method he employed to solve that voter problem. His solution emphasizes how very little the Jewish internationalist bankers care about their own racial brethren, as you shall see. Suddenly, around 1890, there broke out a nationwide series of pogroms in Russia. Many, many thousands of innocent Jews, men, women, and children, were slaughtered by the Cossacks and other peasants. Similar pogroms with similar slaughter of innocent Jews broke out in Poland, Romania, and Bulgaria. All those pogroms were fomented by Rothschild agents. As a result, Jewish terrified refugees from all those nations swarmed into the United States, and that continued throughout the next two or three decades because the pogroms were continuous 
through all those years. All those refugees were aided by self-styled humanitarian committees set up by Schiff, the Rothschilds, and all the Rothschild affiliates. In the main, the refugees streamed into New York, but the Schiff-Rothschild humanitarian committees found ways to shuffle many of them into other large cities, such as Chicago, Boston, Philadelphia, Detroit, Los Angeles, etc. All of them were quickly transformed into naturalized citizens and educated to register as Democrats. Thus, all of that so-called minority group became solid Democratic voter blocs in their communities, all controlled and maneuvered by their so-called benefactors. And shortly after the turn of the century, they became vital factors in the political life of our nation. That was one of the methods Schiff employed to plant men like Nelson Aldrich in our Senate and Woodrow Wilson in the White House. At this point, let me remind you of another of the important jobs that was assigned to Schiff when he was dispatched to America. I refer to the job of destroying the unity of the American people by creating minority group and racial strife. By the pogrom-driven Jewish refugees into America, Schiff was creating one ready-made minority group for that purpose. But the Jewish people as a whole, made fearful by the pogroms, could not be depended upon to create the violence necessary to destroy the unity of the American people. But right within America, there was an already made-to-order, although as yet a sleeping minority group, the Negroes who could be sparked into so-called demonstrations, rioting, looting, murder, and every other type of lawlessness. All that was necessary was to incite and arouse them. Together, those two minority groups, properly maneuvered, could be used to create exactly the kind of strife in America the Illuminati would need to accomplish their objective. Thus, at the same time that Schiff and his co-conspirators were laying their plans for the entrapment of our money system, they were also perfecting plans to hit the unsuspecting American people with an explosive and terrifying racial upheaval that would tear the people into hate fractions and create chaos throughout the nation, especially on all college and university campuses, all protected by Earl Warren decisions and our so-called leaders in Washington. Of course, perfecting those plans required time and infinitely patient organizing. Now, to remove all doubts, I'll take a few moments to give you documentary proof of this racial strife plot. First of all, they had to create leaderships and organizations to draw in millions of dupes, both Jewish and Negroes, who would do the demonstrating and commit the rioting, looting, and lawlessness. So in 1909, Schiff, the Laymans, and other conspirators organized and set up the National Association for the Advancement of the Colored People, known as the NAACP. The presidents, directors, and legal counsels of the NAACP were always white men, Jews appointed by Schiff. And this is the case to this very day. Then, in 1913, the Schiff Group organized the Anti-Defamation League of the B'nai B'rith, 
commonly known as the ADL, to serve as the Gestapo and Hatchetman outfit for the entire great conspiracy. Today, this sinister ADL maintains over 2,000 agencies in all parts of the country, and they advise and completely control every action of the NAACP, core of the Urban League, of all the other so-called Negro civil rights organizations throughout the nation, including such leaders as Martin Lucifer King, Stokely Carmichael, Bayard Rustin, and others of that ilk. In addition, the ADL acquired absolute control of the advertising budgets of many department stores, hotel chains, and TV and radio industrialist sponsors, also advertising agencies, in order to control practically all the mass communications media and force every loyal newspaper to slant and falsify the news and to further incite and at the same time create sympathy for the lawlessness and violence of the Negro mobs. Here is documentary proof of the beginning of their deliberate plot to foment the Negroes into all their lawlessness. Around 1910, one Israel Zangwill wrote a play entitled The Melting Pot. It was sheer propaganda to incite the Negroes and Jews because the play purportedly visualized how the American people were discriminating against and persecuting Jews and Negroes. At that time, nobody seemed to realize that it was a propaganda play. It was that cleverly written. The propaganda was well wrapped up in the truly great entertainment in the play, and it was a big Broadway hit. Now, in those years, the legendary Diamond Jim Brady used to throw a banquet at the famous Delmonico restaurant in New York after the opening performance of a popular play. He threw such a party for the cast of The Melting Pot, its author, producer, and chosen Broadway celebrities. By then, I'd already made a personal mark on the Broadway theater and was invited to that party. There I met George Bernard Shaw and a Jewish writer named Israel Cohen. Zangwill, Shaw, and Cohen were the triumvirate who created the Fabian Society in England and had worked closely with a Frankfurt Jew named Mordecai who had changed his name to Karl Marx. But remember, at that time, both Marxism and communism were just emerging, and nobody paid much attention to either, and nobody suspected the propaganda in the writings of those three really brilliant writers. At that banquet, Israel Cohn told me he was then engaged in writing a book which was to be a follow-up on Zangwill's The Melting Pot. The title of his book was to be a racial program for the 20th century. At that time, I was completely absorbed by my work as a playwright, and significant as that title was, its real objective never dawned on me, nor was I interested in reading the book. But it suddenly hit me with the force of a hydrogen bomb when I received a newspaper clipping of an item published by the Washington, D.C. Evening Star in May 1957. That item was a verbatim reprint of the following excerpt in Israel Cohen's book, A Racial Program for the 20th Century, and it reads as I quote, 
We must realize that our party's most powerful weapon is racial tension by propounding into the consciousness of the dark races that for centuries they have been oppressed by the whites, we can mold them to the program of the Communist Party. In America, we will aim for subtle victory. While inflaming the Negro minority against the whites, we will instill in the whites a guilt complex for their exploitation of the Negroes. We will aid the Negroes to rise to prominence in every walk of life in the professions and in the world of sports and entertainment. With this prestige, the Negro will be able to intermarry with the whites and begin a process which will deliver America to our cause. That same excerpt was entered into the congressional record of June 7, 1957 by Representative Thomas G. Abernathy. Thus the authenticity of that passage in Cohen's book was fully established. But the one question that remained in my mind was whether it represented the official policy or plot of the Communist Party or just a personal expression of Cohen himself. Hence I sought more proof, and I found it. In an official pamphlet published in 1935 by the New York Communist Party's official Workers' Library Publishers, that pamphlet was entitled The Negroes in a Soviet America. It urged the Negroes to rise up, form a Soviet state in the South, and apply for admission to the Soviet Union. It contained a firm pledge that the revolt would be supported by all American Reds and all so-called liberals. On page 38, it promised that a Soviet government would confer greater benefits to Negroes than to whites. And again, this official communist pamphlet pledged that I quote, any act of discrimination or prejudice against a Negro will become a crime under the revolutionary law, unquote. That statement proved that the excerpt in Israel Cohen's book, published in 1913, was an official edict of the Communist Party and directly in line with the Illuminati blueprint for world revolution issued by Weishaupt and later by Albert Pike. Now there's only one question, and that is to prove that the communist regime is directly controlled by the American Jacob Schiff and London Rothschild masterminds of the great conspiracy. A little later, I will provide that proof that will remove even a remote doubt that the communist party as we know it was created by those masterminds, capitalists if you will note, that Schiff, the Warburgs, and the Rothschilds planned and financed the entire Russian Revolution, also the murder of the Tsar and his family, and that Lenin, Trotsky, and Stalin took their orders directly from Schiff and the other capitalists whom they supposedly are fighting. Now can you see why the vile Earl Warren and his equally vile co-Supreme Court justices issued that infamous and treasonous desegregation decision in 1954? It was to aid and abet the plot of the Illuminati conspirators to create tension and strife between Negroes and whites. Can you see why the same Earl Warren issued his decision prohibiting Christian prayers and Christmas carols in our schools? It was done to destroy Christianity. Can you see why Eisenhower, despite all the rigid constitutional prohibitions, 
sent federal troops into a southern state to enforce the desegregation decision. Why Kennedy did likewise. And can you see why Johnson and 66 senators, despite the protests of 90% of the American people, voted for the Consular Treaty, which opens our entire country to Russian spies and saboteurs. All those 66 senators are 20th century Benedict Arnolds. It is up to you and you, all of the American people, to force Congress, our elected servants, to haul in those American traitors for impeachments, and that when proven guilty, they all be given the punishment prescribed for traitors who aid and abet our enemies. And that includes the forcing of rigid investigations by Congress of the CFR and all their fronts, such as the ADL, the NAACP, SNCC, and such Illuminati tools as Martin Lucifer King. Such investigations will completely unmask all the leaders in Washington and the Illuminati and all their affiliations and affiliates as traitors carrying out the Illuminati plot. It will completely unmask the United Nations as the intended crux of the entire plot and force Congress to take the U.S. out of the U.N. and hurl the U.N. out of the U.S. In fact, it will destroy the U.N. and the entire plot. Before I close this phase, I wish to reiterate and stress one vital point, which I urge you to never forget if you wish to save our country for your children and their children. Here is the point. Every unconstitutional and unlawful act committed by Woodrow Wilson, by Franklin Roosevelt, by Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy, and are now being committed by Johnson, is exactly in line with the Illuminati conspirators' centuries-old plot outlined by Weishaupt and Albert Pike. Every vicious decision issued by the traitorous Earl Warren and his equally traitorous Supreme Court justices was directly in line with what the Illuminati blueprint required that all the treason committed by our State Department under Rusk and earlier by John Forster Dulles and Marshall, also all the treason committed by McNamara and his predecessors, is directly in line with that same Illuminati blueprint for the takeover of the world. Also the amazing treason by various members of our Congress, especially by the 66 senators who signed for the Consular Treaty, has been committed on orders from the Illuminati.